Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Gina Romero. She is the founder and head of special projects for Connected Women. This is a really interesting story of Gina's own journey in helping uh, women and communities in need, specifically the Filipino community. She founded Connected Women and has iterated this business to something that is now uh, hugely successful and really helping a huge community of women. Uh, it's a really interesting story and one that is not just helping women, but it's also at the forefront of kind of cutting edge technology, working in AI annotation. So it's really great, really interesting conversation I had with uh, Gina, and I'm sure that you will find it interesting and I do hope that you will enjoy. As always, if you're on any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs, and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms, representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. So Gina, tell us about Connected Women. What does it do? So Connected Women, in its third iteration is an AI and digital task outsourcing solutions company. We're a social enterprise. So we upskill women from the grassroots of the Philippines, women from disadvantaged or displaced or marginalized groups. And we provide them with uh, training for skills for the future of work. And our core focus right now is data annotation services for the AI industry. And uh, you sound very British. Uh, what mm -hmm. uh, what brought you to the Philippines and working on this mission? I'm so glad that you said I sound British. <laughs> I get you all do. sorts of very, questions very. about my accents. Um, about my accent now. I've been in Asia since 2010, so I think my accent is uh, gets a bit confused. But yes, I, I grew up in the UK. I'm half Filipina. Uh, my mom actually came from a very small town in Pora, Pampanga. 
And uh, she went to the UK as a domestic worker back in the 70s. So she was one of the pioneering sort of exports, I guess, of the Philippines. Uh, Met my dad there. I grew up there. And so I spent most of my life there, surrounded by many, many Filipinos who had left their kids behind. So, you know, I grew up one of the few kids in the Filipino community wondering why the kids were left behind. Uh, I then went to Singapore in 2010 with my family. That was for my husband's work and spent uh, six years there and then met a lot of Filipino women in Singapore who had also left uh, their kids behind to become, you know, domestic workers and, and the like. So it just kind of sparked my curiosity as to why this problem was still a problem decades decades after my mom had left and the entrepreneur in me, I guess, uh, was seeking out a solution. So that's how I came back in 2016. Incredible. And it is, it is, you know, you say you call it a problem, but it is incredible. Um, so many women and so many workers leave the Philippines in, in search for sort of economic viability. Yeah? Uh, do you have any insight into, into you know, for the, for the people listening, quite how big that OFW population is? Oh, my gosh. I mean, millions leave the country, you know, mm. um, in search of other opportunities. And the interesting thing is, is most would stay, I, I believe. Of course, there are some who, who want to seek adventure, who want to live and work abroad, and that's um, a different segment. But there are, there are millions, literally, who leave because they don't feel that they can make a decent livelihood at home. And, you know, in the Philippines, education is, is always the key, right? It's always what um, people want to work for. They work to educate their kids so that their kids can have some upward mobility um, and have more opportunities than they had. And, you know, I just meet so many, I met so many women in Singapore and in the UK that just said there was no other option. I had to do this. So it's very much a sacrifice. And I think it's something that can change thanks to technology. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on balance of, of that migration? Of, of course, you know, a lot of men leave as well, but it's it's it, it's really quite different for the women, I suppose, to leave their children. But um, And then some roles are actually, you know, professionalized, um, well-paid, fantastic roles. And then, of course, you also have the domestic roles where often they're not so well-paid and actually don't really generate ex- any extra opportunity necessarily for the people that are paying such a high cost to go overseas but on balance you know does does the whole thing leave a bad taste in your mouth are you hopeful one day that there's no more of this OFW need or or migratory population like where where does it sort of fit yeah. in your mind it's a difficult one really because on one hand there's nothing like living and working overseas to enrich your um, experience and your perspective and that's something that I've personally been really grateful um, to have had you know in my life Uh, But I think when you talk about forced migration, then it's a different story. And I think that's the issue that we're trying to solve, because if people leave because they believe that there's no other choice. And I'll tell you a story about my my son's yaya, right? My my son's nanny in in Singapore. Mm -hmm. We were lucky enough to move as expats to Singapore from the UK. And, um, you know, the expat life in Singapore is pretty nice because you can afford to have a Filipino helper in your home and all the rest, something that I never experienced in the UK. And she was um, a widow. She left her kids when they were two, three years old, I believe, after the husband passed away. And she hadn't been home in eight years. 
this was the this was the one that triggered me to come back to the Philippines with a very loose plan. <laughs> um, because, you know, I said to her, why have you not been home to see your kids in eight years? It's literally a three hour flight, right? And it's not super expensive to to travel from Singapore to the Philippines. She didn't even want to go home because she wanted to save every penny for the education of her mm. sons. Um you know, and that's when it really hit me how dire this situation really is. And, you know, the salaries, as you mentioned, are not huge. You're talking about five, five, six hundred dollars a month, right? Where with the digital economy and, and opportunities that are now available globally, no matter where you are, as long as you're connected, then you should be able to earn that with most basic skills. It's incredible, isn't it? And so you were sufficiently motivated to actually really kind of dedicate a part of your life to to solving this issue and i assume then from the story you you flew specifically to the philippines to try and figure this to crack this nut is that is that right yeah so my husband's also british filipino um we met in the uk uh he's actually the technology um person of the two of us or he was in the beginning i think i've maybe out geeked him now um nice. but uh yeah i you know i I told him that I, I wanted to go back to the Philippines. It wasn't supposed to happen right away. I think my initial pitch to him was, when we retire, <laughs> let's go back to the Philippines and see what we can do to help Filipino women. But, uh, you know, sometimes, and again, I think this is a very entrepreneurial thing. When you have an idea, you kind of obsess over it. So the idea turned into a, a loose business plan and a loose deck. Um, and from there, we convinced ourselves that now was the time. And so we he quit his job and we pretty much packed up and came back to the Philippines with our family in 2016. Um, but we had a lot of groundwork to do to really understand the problem. Mm, mm. And what has that journey been like? You say you've had three iterations now. Is that because the problem is different as to what you really thought it was or the solution is different or just really the implementation needed to be different? That's a really good question, actually. It was always the same problem, but it was the solution that didn't actually work as we had intended. So, and I think you can probably tell from even the short discussion that we've had so far that I'm very purpose-driven. So I really knew that I wanted to help those who really needed help. And so the first iteration was actually 10 years ago in Singapore. Um, I launched Connected Women just because I felt that there was a gap of technology adoption by women in general. And my community in Singapore, when it launched, was a more affluent you know, community of women, professional women, entrepreneur women, um, international, you know, expats, local Singaporean women. And I just felt that if women would adopt technology, it would give them better opportunities to build scalable businesses, to create more impact, to have more balance, flexibility, and, and all of that. So that was kind of the, the purpose behind Connected Women in the early stages. Uh, then I started hiring as that connected women sort of side project, uh, grew in Singapore and I was running more events and conferences and partnerships. I actually outsourced or hired freelancers, um, in the Philippines to support the back office of what I was doing. And that was really great. Like I felt so liberated because I had a small team in the Philippines who was running the back end of my events, my, my social media, all of that side of things. And um, so what happened was my Singapore community was asking me, well, where are you finding all these amazing women and can you help me find someone? So I actually started out doing a bit of freelancer matching um, 
so the original idea was to come back to the Philippines and build a job matching platform because I thought, wow, there's so many Filipino women who need jobs. And yet there's a whole bunch of women entrepreneurs in my network who need help. And so it just made absolute sense. Um, Mm -hmm. So we did. So I came back to the Philippines, found an amazing co-founder, which was one of the deliberate things in my plan, because I know that I know my weaknesses and my strengths. um, And I needed someone to run the business side, you know, and really bring the the investors and all that and the financial side. Um, And so we built the job matching platform. But we started to realize having invested time and money and angel money in this platform that the women who were actually getting opportunities and jobs through the platform were in the top probably 10%, you know, of highly skilled, highly educated women. And I realized that those most in need of work probably couldn't compete with this, um, with this group. So there, (laughs) that's, that's kind of how we went back to the drawing board. Yeah, it's fascinating. Huh? So, and so it has evolved into an outsourcing model. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if you're aware, but I, I've written a book on outsourcing and I actually specifically spoke about impact sourcing and, you know, ethical sourcing and, and things like that. Um, there is there is quite a big industry now um, emerging, connecting this sort of impact sourcing. Um, it's... What are your thoughts? You were saying, you know, in a in a sort of open job board, the top ten percent would end up getting the getting the work, and that's kind of not the idea because you're out there trying to help the sort of lesser capable or, or to give them a leg up. But how does that kind of work? You you then have to match them with employers or clients that are comfortable not having the best and most capable people because they are helping the community is that right is it is there sort of a bit of a um, you know a bit of a tug of war there in terms of interests that's a really interesting perception actually and one that we're really constantly challenging um because of the nature of the work that we do now which is ai annotation work mostly and data cleaning and processing and structuring work it's actually relatively easy <laughs> and I hesitate um, because there are, yeah. of course, some complexities around it, but it's it's relatively easy to, to upskill people with less tech background, at least to get them into the entry-level roles. Um, so what that means is that we've been able to build a very dedicated pool. We've actually trained over a 1,000 women now um, in our program called Elevate IDA, which stands for Artificial Intelligence Data Annotation. And we're seeing amazing results uh, because I guess that was the thesis in the beginning, right? If we train these ladies, can they compete? Can they deliver really yeah. exceptional quality and the type of service that really big clients, because we work with big conglomerates um, and international clients, would would be happy with and not see it as a sort of CSR charity project where they're giving work to mm. people that aren't able to to have opportunities, but rather seeing it as a very commercially viable um, outsourcing model, but having the added benefit of creating impact. Um, So we're really trying hard to position ourselves like that because in actual fact, our quality is outstanding. Our testimonials from our clients are uh, pretty much 
all saying the same thing, that they're amazed at the quality. And I personally attribute this to the fact that, you know, people who, who are given a second chance, whatever that might be, um, and given help to access opportunities, generally want to do a good job because it's not just a job for them. Uh, so I think there's a, another side to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, well done. It is, it is sometimes hard to meld those two aspects, isn't it? You know, by doing the best work possible, but then also sort of selecting a team that are um, inherently sort of, you know, less, I suppose, able or capable or educated or, you know, because that's actually the part of the mission. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really interesting that you're able to balance And it's an amazing um, skill, actually, because, so I'll give you a really random example. So one of our um, best labelers, we call her a super annotator because she's able to achieve better accuracy, better speed um, than others, is actually a, is fisher folk. She's a fisherman's wife. She's never worked. She's never had tech background. She's never had tech skills. And yet for some reason, um, she has a very specifically good annotation skill uh, you know right. it's, i guess it's many things right like ability to focus on on a task for a long periods of time um attention to detail um whatever it is but she's she's really really um good and so that's our question right how how are people who've never done this type of type of work before so good at it and how do we create more people like this and our service um, is actually fully managed. So the ladies never interact um, or they definitely don't interact with clients at the early stages. If they progress, of course, into their career and become um, quality assurance or training or business development, which happens, um, then, of course, then they move into different roles where there is client interaction. But most of the time they sit behind a very capable um, and experienced operations team. Um, and then that allows us to take care of the client's needs um, and then of course take care of the ladies and make sure that they're constantly upskilled in areas where they may need continue you know additional upskilling so behind the scenes is a lot of um, operational effort to match the right ladies of course to the right projects uh, to continue to upskill those who are not ready for certain types of projects even making sure they have the right connectivity the right um, devices for the projects is and then, you know, of course, our commitment to providing flexible and remote work means that we 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 put the ladies first in terms of their flexibility and needs because we want them to be able to work when they're most able to concentrate, right, and be productive. So there's a lot of effort that um, goes on behind the scenes to make sure that we really are ethical. But to us, it's, it's worth it. And I think the quality um, outputs and the deliverables show um, and reflect that extra effort and that extra mile that we go to to help the women. Well done. So you found this AI annotation, and maybe you can just sort of briefly explain what that is exactly and, and the process. Um, but you, you sort of found that that kind of was relatively easy to implement and it kind of resonated and you were able to fulfill your mission. So you kind of, you're doubling down on that industry now is that is that right and from here it's kind of like you know just building staff numbers yeah it's a really interesting space i mean um when when the whole job matching platform had launched in the beta stage and this was just before the pandemic hit and we'd actually raised um angel funds you know to build out that platform and um it started to become i mean it's a dreadful feeling when people have invested in your idea 
And then you suddenly realize that the problem that you're solving is not the problem that you set out to solve. Um, So, you know, it's kind of awkward as a founder to go back to your investors and say, you know, we built this amazing platform and in theory it does work, um, but in reality it doesn't solve what we set out to solve and therefore, you know, it's moot. (laughs) Um, So, but that happened. um, And, you know, in the run up to that, probably three months, three, three to six months before the pandemic, I started researching or, you know, looking online to understand you know, what are the technology jobs that exist that people with even the most limited background or um, education could learn? And something that is obviously, you know, has big market potential, um, potential to scale and also impactful. So I was looking around and I found some amazing case studies. I mean, we didn't invent this, um, you know, this industry. There are so many companies that do it. Um, and in similar in the similar fashion to connected women in that they're creating an impact as well. Um, but, you know, I think we're unique in our approach because we're focusing on women and work from home. Um, but anyway, to answer your question about what, what type of work this is, it's basically the manual categorization, tagging um, and labeling of millions of uh, data sets, lines of data or images um, to train artificial intelligence models. So if you think about something like a self-driving car, we have to teach a self-driving car to see like a human so that they don't, you know, drive into the wrong thing on the road and they know how to follow road signs and all the rest. So that's why um, in order to do that, you have to label millions and millions and millions of, of images of roads and street signs and people and anything else that a human might see and use to make decisions. So it's quite labor intensive and quite manual um, and repetitive work in some ways uh, and quite specialized work in in other ways but it's something that anyone can technically learn how to do and learn how to upskill in and of course with with the boom of the AI industry uh, these types of services are becoming more and more in demand yeah it's incredible isn't it and is it going to carry on forever because from what i understand like as soon as you annotate every lamppost then it will get increasingly sort of increasing granularity and then you'll have to sort of you know annotate more and more stuff uh, more minute like will will the ai have learnt everything in the next 2 or 3 years or 20 years and then you're all out of work or is this sort of an ongoing um uh, like uh, training for AI machines. Yeah, it's an interesting topic um, and subject to a lot of debate, I think. Um, I mean, in some ways, our job is to make ourselves redundant in certain aspects, right? Like, you know, our job is to train a machine so a machine can do the job uh, without a human, right? That really is the objective. Um, and so, you know, I think, and this is a very fast moving space. So I think that there will be a lot of um, applications that are built that won't require human annotation anymore. It's already been trained. Um, but if you think about if you think about it from the context of a human, you know, you, you're born and you know nothing, and you you can go through a hundred years of life and you still don't know everything. So I think in a similar fashion, you know, there's there's just so much um, that an AI could be trained in. And we're very complex and nuanced as as humans, right? There's so many things that um, probably an AI could never really 
could never really do better or it would just make more sense for a human to do it. So, and I know in, in the outsourcing industry and other industries, there's a lot of discussion around which of the jobs that are going to get, um, you know, disrupted. Uh, is this going to create jobs? Is this going to um, create a lot of job losses? And it's kind of all of the above, right? <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Has, has the nature of what you're annotating changed over the last period? You know, like, is it kind of evolving? Like AI has learned what a lamppost is and now you're sort of going on to rubbish bins? Or um, do you see that it, the model hasn't necessarily advanced that much? You're still doing the same stuff. Well, even organizations like Tesla, right, that are throwing billions at, at these types of um projects and not yet able to have a fully self-driving car um i think we've i think we're still pretty far away i think a lot of the time we overestimate how quickly things are going to move but then we also underestimate how quickly things are going to move um if you think about um i mean there are just so many areas that that ai can support and a lot of the areas that we're working in with our clients are r&d like a lot of them are very experimental um so on the basic data processing side it's just like clean this up because we can't run a script um to fix this spreadsheet <laughs> and it needs a person to manually go through it line by line and fix something um so those are just basic structuring and cleaning data and they're also needed uh, when you're building out automation right um, but on the other hand some of the um projects that we work on with clients are so cutting edge that the client is looking at it still as a, very much an experiment. Um, so there are multiple iterations that have to happen e even in the early stages. I mean, one one of the projects that we worked on was a Silicon Valley um, company building out um, sort of AI sports capabilities like refereeing and um, augmenting human referees and stuff like that. So, you know, there was a lot of data to annotate and then they had to test it and then they had to come back and, and have us do some some other annotation uh so yeah there's a lot there's a lot happening and i think yeah it's um, kind it's of exciting. infinite yeah, infinite sort I of permutations so. of what you can analyze i suppose yeah like you know like you, you can spend 10 years analyzing a football field and and all the lines and the marks and things like that it's it's fascinating isn't it yeah and um, even in terms of like i mean a big part of i mean chat gpt right it's like a phenomenon um it's 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 something that is quite interesting because it's only ever as good as the instructions that you give it. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, some humans are just not good at giving instructions. So, you know, we also have to evolve as, as people, right? We have to improve the way that we think and communicate to be able to make the most of, of tools like this. So I think we're going to see some, um, the jobs that are most at risk, I think, or the people that are most at risk are, of course, people that are not able to adapt to using these tools. And a lot of it is, sim is ironically, um, communication skills, which is very human. Yeah, talking about chat GPT or OpenAI, I don't know if you saw back in January, there was that whole sort of kerfuffle over, you know, that again is AI, artificial intelligence that requires moderation of the content. It's different, it's obviously textual content um, and that took a lot of moderation to ensure that it's on track and not saying the wrong things and 
blah, blah, blah. But it was blown open because obviously OpenAI raised about $10 billion and now they're some of the most powerful people on the earth. And they were using Kenyan workers for less than $2 per hour. And it's sad, isn't it? Like I, you know, people in the West just go, well, that's absolutely slave labor. But I suppose, you know, there is also the perspective that it's given those Kenyans opportunity and a um, safe, clean job in an office as opposed to maybe having to go down a mine shaft. What, what do you think about that? I suppose not necessarily that particular case, but um, that issue in essence. Yeah, there's always a bit of a moral dilemma, right? I mean, I remember when um, fashion companies, and this still happens today, but there was a lot of blow up around the big fashion brands, right? Um, because it was uncovered that they were using child labor or cheap labor. Um, and, you know, when, I mean, you live in the Philippines, I live in the Philippines, you see the reality of um, how people have to live when they're living on or below the poverty line. And I think it's easy to sit in developed countries and criticize um, companies that hire at, at below standard rates. But you're right, the the reality is to put food on the table, what else would they have to do? Um, mm. I don't know how to solve it, but I think, you know... The, and that, the, that $2 brilliant... an hour is probably pretty good for the Kenyan, isn't it? You know, it, it's, it has yeah. to be competitive, otherwise they wouldn't have people doing it. I mean, it's it's not coercion, it's not slave labour, it, it's actually in working still a better the job option. market. Yeah, yeah, it's still a better yeah. option, unfortunately. But I think this is where, you know, again, technology can really level the playing field, right? Because... For sure, you can outsource um, to countries like the Philippines and people can earn a really decent wage and have a really decent job and you can save a ton of money, right, as a client. So this has been happening for years. But I think because of how globalized the job market is becoming, it's becoming a lot more competitive, right? I mean, um, I know a lot of freelancers in the Philippines who are charging US rates because they can because they have a skill that is, you know, on par with um, international rates, uh, international skill standards or better. And um, also because there's lack of talent. So the supply and demand situation means that they can command those types of rates. So I think in many ways it's good, um, but there has to be some balancing aspect as well, right? So. It's hard, isn't it? You know, uh, someone once said to me, like, China in the beginning was um, like poorly capable staff, very cheap, generating crap stuff, basically. Yeah. But, you know, fast forward 20 or 30 years, and it's moderately priced staff, potentially even expensive staff now, producing the highest quality products in the world. You know, and it only yeah. takes sort of 20 or 30 years. And in that time, you've gone from, you know, like China's pulled about 650 million people out of poverty through this kind of manufacturing thing. Um, so it's obviously had a significant positive impact there. And in terms of capability, the country is now producing technology better than the U.S., and it doesn't take that long, but you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? And you've got to have those workers engaged. And then, as you say, like in the Philippines, you know, people start with basic tasks, but then if they're good, they they charge equivalent to someone in the US. And, and that never would have happened if you didn't have that sort of um, that 
level economic playing field where anyone can log into Upwork or similar platforms and participate. It's it's super yeah. powerful, isn't it? It really is. And I think, you know, I mean, as, you know, our company um, principles is that we always pay minimum wage or above. Uh, so that's Metro Manila minimum wage. So, you know, even if they come from somewhere really remote where the minimum wage may be lower, um, we always pay minimum wage and above. We pay for training. So when our ladies join training, we pay them. Um, and so, of course, that means that we can only work with clients who are willing to pay us a decent amount. I mean, we're still very competitive, but we can't compete on price with sort of data sweatshops because that wouldn't allow us to treat our workers as we intend to treat them. And it wouldn't allow us to continue to provide upskilling, which is really the key because, you know, we don't, at Connected Women, we don't want to be doing janitorial work forever. I mean, at the end of the day, 80% of AI is janitorial work because there's so much labeling and all the rest that needs to happen. But that may not be the case in the future, as we've talked about. Um, and even if it is, we don't want to be there. We want to upskill ourselves and upskill our people so that we become a very um, viable and you know proficient talent pool for much more higher value solutions, including AI solutions. And do you see that? Do you see that happening? Do you see your workforce upskilling? Because it's not going to be over, you know, three, four, five years, is it? It's almost like intergenerational in a way. Like over a career, people progress, don't they? You know, and you get you see that in the outsourcing industry all the time. I mean, people go in as agents, and then they, you know, a few of them end up CEOs of either their own outsourcing firms or or some of the major outsourcing firms. Like it's pretty incredible, but it does take years, doesn't it? I think in the tech industry, it's a little bit different because, I mean, even, you know, Connected Women started with our very first Elevate IDA training in 2020 in partnership with UN Women. So we'd ne- we hadn't done as, a, as Connected Women. Obviously, we have individuals within our team who have worked on these types of projects. But as a company, we hadn't actually done these projects before. So we really had to prove the concept to ourselves as well as, of course, to our partners and our clients that this could be done. Um, But when I think about some of the work that we started out with in 2021, when we had our first few projects with clients, and our clients are big clients. So, you know, one of our major clients is the Avoitis Group, um, which is a a tech um, conglomerate. And, um, you know, PLDT Group, which is one of the biggest telcos in the country. Um, So, you know, they they have a lot of different projects happening. And so what typically happens is we do a small project in the beginning. um, It the process works really well. The relationship works really well. We get good feedback. They come back with another project. So, and a lot of the time, these projects are getting more and more complicated. So the upskilling potential is actually quite rapid. Um, some of the challenges that we actually have in reality are much more basic. It's not around skills. It's more around connectivity or um, devices available because as you can imagine some of the more complex image annotation projects they have to be zoomed in at a pixel level um, so you know when we first did a project like that the ladies laptops were just overheating um, mm. so you know there is some selection based on on tech capability and that's really important yeah, you do need, you can't use sort of standard equipment is that right like you do need better processes it depends. Um, I mean, some projects are literally basic. Like you don't even have to zoom in. You just box it. You just you just box like millions of, you know, 
grocery products or whatever it could be. It just depends on what the client is going to use it for and um, how accurate the labels need to be. Uh, some projects are literally just in Excel sheets. It's not really as exciting as you might right. imagine an AI project to be. Um, but, you know, for us, we need lots of basic projects so that we can give a lot of entry level work to those who are just starting out. And then we're also building our portfolio. So we have more and more complex work that those who've already started out on the basic stuff can actually get involved in. And so we're, we all learn on the job. And that is the space. Even our clients, in many cases, are learning on the job with some of the projects that we're doing because they're really cutting edge. Um, so it's really fun, actually. It's like an interesting space to be in because you never know what project you're going to be doing um, next week. And some of our projects have been super interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. And how do you how do you compete against those uh, digital sweatshops? Like, um, I assume there's some sort of in India and Pakistan where, you know, their price would be crazy low uh, because, again, like they're sort of a notch below in terms of living costs and things like that again. Um, like how, how do you remain competitive? Is it, is it sort of about the, the other aspects of quality and reliability and uh, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably as competitive as you can get when it comes to ethical um, work standards because we already have you know, low operational um, costs because of the way that we're structured, because the ladies are remote and all of the rest. So I think we already can offer very competitive rates. Um, but our clients will often seek us out because they want to work with um, socially responsible companies. And I think you mentioned this at the beginning of our discussion, that this is something that's be is becoming more and more important. I think we live in a much more conscious um, society now because of the many mistakes that we've already made. And I think that a lot of um, companies are seeking out organizations that they know are contributing to the betterment of people's lives. And and that's really just the way it should be, right? I mean, it can't just be all about, always about price because someone pays um, somewhere when, when you really um, price yourself just at rock bottom or when you seek out services at rock bottom. So I think it's good for us to... I mean, I have had clients that have contacted us and um, one of our most amazing clients, actually. And one of the first things he asked me was, and, you know, how much do you pay your workers? And and I kind of felt a bit defensive because I thought he wanted to negotiate the price really low. And then I realized that he was asking those questions because he wanted to make sure that we paid our workers at least a decent wage minimum, um, minimum, right. you know, acceptable wage. And I thought that was really nice. Uh, and then I discovered that more and more companies are in a similar boat, that they, they understand the implication of their actions uh, when they, when they push supplier prices down. And we're seeing this, right? It, in all the it's kind of funny, isn't it? It's a, it's a bit like that open AI thing blow up. Like the, the AI company should actually wear it, should, should promote this stuff, you know, say that they are providing hundreds or thousands of jobs um, to, to feed these machines. Like, um, but instead it's sort of swept under the carpet a little bit, isn't it? It's, it's almost like a yeah. dirty little secret of, it's of like AI. It's invisible humans, it should be right? Celebrated. <laughs> Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, and and I think Gina, we're also as... fortunate to learn from some of these mistakes, right? I mean, as because we're coming in, we're not the first players in this in this market, and so the advantage of that is that we can look at some of the mistakes that have been made by others, inadvertent mistakes, right? And then and learn and say, okay, well, 
we're not going to go down that route. So we don't provide content moderation or anything like that because we're not able to protect the women because they work from home, right? Right, right. And what is interesting as well, you know, you're now going through the machinations of every other entrepreneur having to build a successful, self-sustainable business. And, and that's hard, you know, like to scale these things and to get new clients and to do the projects. And um, But you're also, you've also got this sort of extra obligation of, of kind of, um, you know, impact, uh, which a lot of other founders, you know, while they don't necessarily do harm, they're not necessarily, you know, sort of trying to help out everyone else in the community. As you as you scale, do you find it harder and harder? You know, because if you if you have a small company of twenty staff, you can look after everyone, and you are a family, and you are a tight little community. But if you scale to a thousand staff, then things become more process driven. You know, there's HR departments and there have to be sort of SOPs and processes instead of sort of love and affection. Do you think that as you scale, it can be still equally kind of community driven and um, coming from the heart sort of thing? Or do you think it will have to revert more to sort of business principles? I think I think looking after your employees and doing good is a really good business principle. Um, I think it's a business principle that's often overlooked, right? People will will often say, oh, so are you a charity? Um, oh, so you're for profit. And I think especially in, in, in the region, right, where social entrepreneurship is maybe not as mature, um, mm. there's a lot of confusion sometimes around how we how we approach things. But I mean, the way that we see it is we're an impact first for-profit company. Um, and our priority is to compete in the market and provide um, talent, right? To, to bridge the talent gap, especially um, in cutting edge tech like AI. But it for us, it's just second nature to to make sure that we're building on ethical principles. And I think I'm really pleased to say that a lot of investors now are looking for this. A lot of employees are looking for this. I think we have a different type of um, landscape now. And I think companies are going to get called out more and more and asked about these things, even generationally, right? Like the younger generation, the Gen Zs and the rest. It's a very um, loud thunderclap there. I don't know if my, my crisp um, managed to silence it. Um, it did go a little yeah. bit fuzzy for a minute. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think... I think this is something that's expected of companies. I don't think we can get away with being unethical. Um, either you're ethical or you're unethical, right? That's how I see yeah. it, very black and white. And I think that it just makes good business sense to be an ethical company. And this is the future for me. I mean, I don't see how we can um, do it any other way. Uh, but of course, I'm an idealist in, in many ways. But in other ways, uh, I consider myself a realist no, it's amazing. It's amazing. You know, and I like outsourcing is so controversial. We we do a lot of advertising into the West and specifically the US. And um, there are, you know, and we're saying, you know, salaries of five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars a month. And people are um, saying that's exploitation, that's slave labor, you know, you should be disgusted. And um, it, it's incredible, the perception, you know, and and it's so sad because I know that that's where that's exactly where the opportunity is for everyone. It's a win-win 
for the West and it's a win-win for the Philippines. If you could get everyone in the province a job for $500 a month, the country would be so prosperous. You know what I mean? And yeah. And it's a it's a very reasonable wage, like a fantastic wage for vast majority of people in the province. Incredible wage. You know, they don't even have that opportunity. And actually, if if there was by miracle an opportunity to get everyone a job in the province at that amount, um, it would just be incredible for the community. But it, it's just such a shame that sort of the West misinterpret it and see it as sort of slave labor and exploitation and you should not engage because the worst thing is actually to not engage you know and then the whole the com- the country is sort of economically isolated and can't get going it's um it's kind of sad huh? but it's yeah it's i mean the opportunity heartwarming is to about, see that there are people working on it absolutely i mean mm. i think the opportunity brought about by the outsourcing industry as a whole in the philippines are incredible i mean you're really seeing the fruits of that now right where um, we have a really fast-growing middle class um, where families can afford to actually go and have meals out and buy cars and invest in properties and all the rest because of um, this maturing and really thriving industry. And, of course, the freelancing industry. Um, there's just a, a latest report just came out, actually, by Payoneer and uh, and Gcash that I haven't opened yet. Um, but mm. uh, the the last big report, which was the... 2019, I believe, said that the Philippines was the sixth fastest growing um, growing freelance market in the world. So I think there's an incredible hub of talent here. And there are now many ways that that talent can be accessed, not just through traditional outsourcing, but through, like I said, platforms like Upwork and all the rest, crowdsourcing and through companies like Connected Women. Um, but, you know, I've, I was out of the country for for decades. Um, I really didn't know what to expect when I came back. I was very pleasantly surprised at how much progress progress has been made. Um, and I'm really excited about the potential. I mean, that's not something, I came back to help, right? To solve a problem. And because I saw there was an opportunity to solve a problem, but I didn't realize how much potential um, there really would be when I came back. So mm-hmm. I think that was really nice. And, you know, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier that there's nothing like traveling and living um, or spending some extended periods overseas uh, to really understand some of these more complex um, aspects of the world, right? And I think people that criticize these types of models are definitely people who haven't seen how poor um, some families really are, right? And how difficult it is to earn even small amounts of money. But I think, you know, the more global we become, then the more people's eyes will open. And it is, it's, it's, it's only because of technology that any of this can actually happen, isn't it? You know, this is a very recent phenomenon. Um, it, it's because people can connect online because they can get, um, you know, they can become part of the global economy as opposed to sort of being geographically isolated. Um, so it's, an, it's, it's just incredible, isn't it? And so I see, you know, it's only been around 10, 20 years. Uh, and so I see over the next 20 years, like, it will just progress. And as the younger kids grow up, knowing this you know and what amazes me is you know we should wrap up soon but what amazes me is the um a lot of the kids in the province still aren't aware of this and i think all of the schools need to need to educate the communities that 
they can now join the global economy instead of sort of being limited by their local economy. They can stay at home, they can stay with their family, but they can plug in to the much more powerful global economy by yeah. a computer. Um, and this and is one a, of the amazing things. Opportunity. Like with the community, like some of the, pro so the way that we work at Connected Women, and it's kind of like a very novel way of doing it, is that we actually partner with huge organizations like the Aboitis Group or, um, and others who fund um, scholarships. And so we then go through the local government units to um, work with them on the ground to find high potential um, women who are possible, you know, who are in a disadvantaged situation, they might be single mothers, you know, they might have um, some kind of um, disability or illness, but they're still able to work and they need um, that income. And so we bring them into our program, they can learn these skills. And these are women who are 18 years old and above, we don't have an upper age um, group. Most of the women who come through our program are probably in the sort of 30s to 40s group. So these are not women who are looking for a career in tech. Um, they're just looking to earn. That's really their main reason for joining our programs. We say, do you want to learn how to earn from home? We will teach you um, skills that you can use and find work um, and jobs. And so they sign up because of that. But when they've been through the training um, and they're working in projects, they've amazed themselves that they can be part of this industry. Um, so, you know, they're educating their kids um, about these opportunities. The word is spreading on the ground. And um, of course, through Connected Women's other community advocacy, like our, our meetups, we have 110,000 women in our community um, all over the country, wow. not participating in, in AI projects. Um, but that's really a, a kind of advocacy arm that allows us to champion um, opportunities in digital, whether it's through entrepreneurship, whether it's um, freelancing, whether it's re remote work. Um, so, you know, we're doing our bit, I guess, to, to put the word out there, but there's still a lot, like a, a really lot of work um, <laughs> to be done. Absolutely. And well, congratulations, Jeannie. You, you, you certainly made incredible inroads into that mission and uh, yeah, incredible, incredible work. Connected women. So if anyone wants to learn more, Gina, if people want to reach out or learn more about what you're doing, how can they get in touch? Sure, you can go to connectedwomen.com, um, which is our main website. That points you to services or community um, activities that we do. Or you can reach out to me personally on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn is I am Gina Romero. I think I'm easy to find. Fantastic. I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Gina. That was Gina Romero. She is the founder and head of special projects at Connected Women. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And as always, if you want to email us, just send us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.